Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Olympus's outpost on Spiritual Unity Radio Network. I am Hercules Invictus. My Olympian mission is to promote lifelong personal development, human empowerment, out-of-the-box thinking, creative self-expression, and a dedication of one's unique talents to community service. All of my labors in this lifetime celebrate the hero's journey in myth, legend, spirituality, popular culture, and in daily life. I firmly believe that the human spirit is essentially heroic and always seeking ways to express its innate nobility and greatness, and that a life fully lived, dedicated to actualizing the highest we can conceive, is the noblest expression of human existence. Tonight on Majors, Sages, and Seers, our guest is Luke Eastwood. Luke has been involved in uh, the arts for most of his life. Um, he has on his website uh, writing, published articles, published books, some of his published and unpublished poetry, a gallery of digital art and photography, his music, and lots of information about himself. Uh, he's been interested in spirituality for most of his lifetime, ranging from early Christianity to Buddhism and many forms of paganism, Druidry, Druidism in particular. Um, he began studying Druidry in the late 1990s, and he's been a practicing Druid and celebrant for many years. He's also a fan of sword and sandal cinema, especially classic sword and sandal cinema. So we'll be exploring all of that in this hour. Greetings and welcome, Luke. How are you? Hi. Uh, I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm glad that you're here. And Laura Perry recommended you very highly, and I think very highly of Laura Perry. So I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Yeah, me too. She's great. She really is great. Now, 
you're a very eclectic type of person. So even though you've uh, kind of settled on the druidry as like the point of your arrow, uh, your arrow tip is very broad in that it encompasses a lot of uh, subjects and uh, demonstrates a lot of uh, creative uh, interest. How did you begin your unique uh, journey? Hmm. Yeah, uh, well, I suppose if you could say it kind of started out from not really knowing what I was interested in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, you know, when you're, when you're born, you know, you, you, you don't know what your skills are. And as you, you kind of go through childhood, uh, I suppose all children are kind of creative, really. You know, everybody, when they're a little child, loves to draw. And people like some children, like, love to sing songs. And, you know, uh-huh. but um, it takes a while before you discover, one, what you, you, you actually like. And what you're interested in and um i was always really interested in creativity but i think my parents pushed me more towards sort of science and uh, you know stuff that might get you a good job Uh Um, but i was always always drawn back to the creative arts you know um so, uh, you know, I used to love drawing pictures of dinosaurs when I was a kid and stuff, uh, like like loads of kids do. Uh, and I loved music. I grew up listening to music my whole life. My my dad was actually in a in a rock band, and, you know, oh, wow. he, he was really into, into music, and uh, he had this, like, fantastic stereo back in the 70s. And so I, I did hear, like, like uh, loads of great music from the 50s onwards um, yeah, in like superb quality stereo because he had this sort of really nice stereo um, that he'd sort of saved up for and everything and it was his pride and joy really you know mm-hmm. um, and I kind of suppose I got an interest in in books um, and that was kind of funny really because um, when I was sort of younger I didn't read an awful lot and then I um, somebody gave me you know I quite got into mythology at a young age somebody bought me like the kiddie versions of uh, actually the 12 labors of Hercules and I think I got uh-huh. a kiddie version of, of the Odyssey and then uh, one day I was in school and you know you had to get pick books to read right and um a lot of the time, I just just read sort of trashy stuff or graphic novelly type things, and then I stumbled across this kind of old-looking book, which was um, Egyptian myths. So I, I kind of um, thought, oh, that looks interesting, and I just couldn't put it down. I was just absorbed by it, and um, so I, I started reading other mythology as well, like the Greek myths and then some of the Arthurian stuff. In fact, I remember there was a, a BBC series of, I think it was called Arthur. Um, anyway, it was, you know, the Arthurian legends. I remember it being kind of a bit scary, actually, some of it. That would have been in the late 70s, I think, when that came uh-huh. out into late 70s. So, I mean, a lot of these things sort of, they sit in the back of your mind. And yes, later in life. They um they seem to sort of reemerge uh, as you know your interests change and you know various points in your life 
um, might prompt sort of a, a reawakening or a sort of resurgence of certain interests. So, um, yeah, a lot of these things have come, come and gone in, in my life. Like, um, for instance, my, my mother introduced me to yoga when I was about 10. And, of mm-hmm. course, being that age, I found it really easy. You know, I could do the lotus position and all the stuff without any real effort. Right. You're so flexible when you're that age. And then I forgot about it for years and years. And I would have been maybe about 19 or 20 when I was a student and um, a friend of mine brought some Indian guy over to teach meditation. And, you know, then suddenly it was like, oh, yoga. And, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, thing, things can come in cycles, and I found with my creative life, it's very much like that. I might have had periods when I was really into music, periods when I'm kind of into writing, and uh, with art as well. So um, I don't think there's any reason why you can't like uh, chop and change. Right. Between the different different disciplines, if you're able to to do them, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you that uh, basically, uh, um, as you uh, said, that we go through life, we explore different things, trying to find our thing, and sometimes our thing happens to be many different things rather than just uh, uh, one thing. And uh, it's good. You're a Renaissance man, then. Uh, uh, you have many interests and many ways of uh, creatively expressing yourself. Do you have a favorite uh, way of expressing yourself? Like, do you prefer your music over your photography or your writing over your art? Mm, well, I think that's changed with time. Uh, well, during my 20s, I was really interested in music. And I, I suppose now I'm mostly interested in the writing. But I think I've got more confident with the writing. Um, I did did a I did a spell of sort of journalism in my twenties, and then I kind of stopped. But I didn't really have the confidence to write, you know, write books or fiction at that time. And you know, the poetry I had written, I just kept to myself for a very long time. So uh, for from yeah, most of the the twenties, I was really focused on mostly music uh, and a bit of art as well. So I guess it it changes depending on where you're at in your life, you know? Very, very true. You've written four books, am I correct, that have been published? I'm sure you've written many other things that Um, that have been. Well, there's a few, there's more books than that now, actually, but um, the the ones on spirituality are, yeah, I think there's four that are in that realm. And, uh, yeah, I've done one fairly recently called The Druid Garden, and I have another one coming out in September, which is about Halloween and where that comes from. Oh, awesome. That's our favorite holiday. My wife and I got married on Halloween. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, it's such a, a popular festival now. All around the world, people have you know, celebrate this festival in different ways. It seems to have a common theme despite, you know, massive isolation. Uh, you know, like, for instance, Ireland wouldn't be connected with with Mexico, but then you've kind of got a lot of commonality between 
the two uh, at that time of year. Yeah, La, La Dia de los Muertos. I, I went there and experienced that uh, personally uh, once many, many moons ago. It, it was it was very awesome. Mm. Yeah, I'd so, say so. I've actually been to Mexico a long time ago, but that was during the summertime. Mm. Um, well, I was in the States and I went to Mexico for a week and then came back again. How did Druidry finally capture you? Like with me, I, I explored several avenues of spiritual expression, uh, but I always kept my Greek uh, heritage uh, um, and uh, the spirituality attached to the myths as a constant as I explored other things. And then as I got older, now I'm in my 60s, it's like, well, this has been a constant throughout my life. And truth be told, this resonates most powerfully with uh, who I am. So I might as well, you know, in the uh, twilight of my years, uh, focus on the things that I really, really uh, enjoy that really, really resonate with me. What was it about Druidry? Because you, you're also an explorer, a spiritual explorer. Um, what was it about Druidry that, that drew you so that you identified yourself as a Druid as well as an artist? Well, I suppose um, I had a bit of a confusing um, time, spiritually speaking, because, um, you know, I didn't have much sort of spiritual sort of education when I was younger. Um, it just wasn't really discussed. And then, uh, then I was sent to Catholic school and we started going to mass and things, which I hadn't done when I was younger. I think my my um, my father sort of was kind of more sort of atheist, and then sort of maybe changed his mind a bit. And then um, and my mother wasn't really bothered about religion either way. So um, that was kind of a bit odd. And then um, when I was about fifteen, I was introduced to uh, Buddhism by my uncle, which kind of sort of open these the Pandora's box if you like um, mm-hmm. to the idea that there's more beyond the Catholic Church you know because well you may know yourself it's very much sort of a, a dogmatic sort of uh, church and you know it's our way or the highway kind of thing but there's, there's not a lot of room for Gnosticism and um, I just you know that was so different from you know, from the dogma of the church, it just made me realize that there, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat, to use a rather odd expression. And, um, you know, I had been interested in the history, you know, of, uh, I suppose, the British Isles of Britain and Ireland. And, uh, you know, my my dad had a lot of interest in Syrian myth. And, you know, he'd mentioned interesting stuff about, Scotland, where where I was born, but I didn't really live there very long. So, um, you know, in the background, there's sort of this uh, nebulous sort of image of Celtic peoples and the Druids, which seemed very distant and far away. But um, then I, I guess I discovered the fact that, you know, there actually are Druids today, because... Uh, you you know, I suppose, like many people, I had the impression that that was something that had died out, you know, uh, you know, the bones of 2,000 years ago. Um, and then, so I was quite surprised to discover 
that there's uh, you know modern day witches, modern day druids, um, and that would have been sort of, I suppose, sort of the the early 90s. I started to discover that, and I started reading up a bit on it, and then it was sort of the about 1996. I think I discovered this book called The Book of Druidry, which is by uh, Ross Nichols. He is the guy that started the Order of Bards, Olives, and Druids. Druids, yes. Uh, by that time, he'd actually died, and uh, the order was defunct for a while, and then Philip Carl took restarted it after a pause of, I think, about more than 10 years. Anyway, I saw this book in the window because I'd found, you know, it was very hard to get any real information about what what a druid does or, or how to become one. You know, um, even today, I suppose bulk of the books on druid, druidry or druidism or the druids are, are historical. So there's, you know, that they'll tell you about what happened, you know, uh, 1,500, 2,000 plus years ago. Um, so this was the first book I actually found that was practical in terms of actually discovering what that means to, you know, today in modern terms. And, um, yeah, I just rushed in and bought the book. They only had one copy, actually, which was uh, in the window. Um, that's how I spotted it. And um, I suppose that kind of changed everything for me, really. Well, that is great. And you reached out and connected with other people, or did you evolve your own uh, uh, practice and uh, observe your own celebrations? Um, not at that time. At that time, I I didn't really know um, about sort of joining groves. In fact, I didn't join the, the order for, I think it was about another seven, seven or so years before I actually joined uh, OBOD. But um, so I just sort of started trying to learn on my own. And, um, you know, I had considered going to a moot that was in London. I was living in London at the time. And then um, after I moved to Ireland, I did find um, a grove in in southeast of Ireland, in Wexford. <laughs> and I joined that about... I suppose about a year before I joined uh, Obod. So uh, I suppose I was quite lucky, really, uh, because, I mean, you can be a solitary kind of practitioner druid and purely from uh, lack of opportunity rather than choice, where I know, I mean, you live in a massive country, you know, some people might be, uh, you know, 500 miles away from the nearest group. Right. But in a country country like Ireland it's tiny so I mean you can get from coast to coast in about five hours you know on bad roads <laughs> wow so um, for your four spirituality books I guess let's go on a guided tour of those starting with the Druid Garden Gardening for a Better Future and uh, there's a whole other area of interest that uh, wasn't even on the table a few minutes ago Mm. Well, that's the most recent one, and um, I'm I'm actually a horticulturist as well as a druid, so I've got to put my foot in both camps, if you like. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose that makes me a bit unusual, you know, whereas, you know, there'd be other people like uh, Eleanor Hoffman, who she's a herbalist and a druid. So she's written a lot of books on, on that because she has expertise in that particular area. So I kind of thought it would be interesting to tie the two things together because I feel there's a, a kind of a quite often a bit of a gap between the practicalities of living in the physical world in an ecological or kind of green way and the kind of theory of being spiritual and you know loving the earth and um Somehow I felt that there was a gap where the, the two don't quite meet each other. I'm not saying mm-hmm. everyone's like this, but I mean, I think there, the intentions may be there, but uh, a lot of people don't have the the actual knowledge about, say, how to look after trees or plants or how to grow stuff. But, you know, they, they may have the, the intention, the... Uh, uh, the love of Gaia or the Earth, uh, but don't really know how to manifest that in a practical sense. So, so that's very really cool. a lot of that was a lot of what inspired the book, trying to bring these two things together. My my wife Athena is a Celt, and she uh, would love to read that book. So uh, I will share with her the PDF. Because uh, that, that's something she feels very passionate about, and uh, uh, she does that every day, if the weather allows. So does some uh, uh, gardening. Yeah, well, um, gardening is a funny thing because uh, some people just take to it really naturally, and I suppose I'm one of those people that just sort of, I just seem to have a good instinct for it. And uh, but you know, I. I don't teach really at the moment, but for a number of years, I used to teach a grow your own course to adults yeah. in, in a school at night. And uh, it just, um, it's, it's funny how things you're used to, you kind of can take them for granted so much, like being able to ride a bicycle. For someone that's never seen a bicycle or ridden one, it's, it's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? And I remember getting on a bike and falling off many times as a child in fact, um, I remember um, I, I'm left-handed and I couldn't turn right when I was small. I used to keep crashing every time I turned right. <laughs> but now that just seems utterly ridiculous because, I'm, you know, riding a bike's easy. But it's the same with many things. And I realized from this teaching this course that some of the people who came on it actually had absolutely zero idea about gardening like literally nothing at all. And so you had to start from the ground up and really just, you know, build a foundation to then put sort of more knowledge on top of. Um, and I suppose many things are like that, really. So uh, um, a lot of what I taught in that course, which was an eight-week course I've incorporated into the book, alongside the more spiritual aspects of it. That is definitely an incredible resource and very much needed. And you identified a dilemma very clearly. 
a lot of people who are into nature religions actually live in urban places, so they don't have the practical skills to uh, commune with nature to the extent that you're writing about. So that that would be an awesome resource to have. How about your other Druid book, The Druid Primer? Well, um, that's a bit of an odd one, really, in that it's sort of a – I kind of wrote it for myself in a way because um, I don't have a, a very good memory. It's um, one of the sort of traditions of Druidism is, is oral culture, oral transmission. And, I mean, the ancient Druids used to memorize uh, – huge amounts of, of of lore, really, you know, stuff about, uh, say, their, the family they served or they lived in, and, you know, genealogies of kings, poetry, all kinds of stuff. And I've always found that really difficult. You know, I, I can't even remember my own poems. <laughs> I have to read them out. <laughs> so I thought to myself, right, I've got this, uh, I've accumulated quite a, a large library of books over time, you know, um, sort of all, all about sort of different aspects of Druidism and Celtic culture and mythology. And, uh, you know, it's great because it's there. I can go and look through it. And I just thought, God, wouldn't it be handy if I had like one book which had all the most of what what I want to look at and and read sort of in one volume, you know, as sort of as a, a sort of like a, a compendium for my own self. So I thought, well, hey, maybe I'll, I'll just do it. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll write one. So what, that was the basic idea for it was uh, it would actually be handy for me to condense a lot of what, uh, you know, I, I, I've learned and probably forgotten again into a, a volume that I could just dip into, for, you know, if I'd forgotten uh, something to do with home or, you know, some aspect of the seasonal festivals, I could just kind of flick through it and just find what I was looking for. So that that's kind of really how that got started. And it took me quite a few years to, to actually um, put it together. And um, I suppose... There's a, probably about 15 years worth of research and reading, uh, and and sort of practical learning as well that went into into that book. So again, something uh, very deep and spiritual, and ties to the to the practical. Um, now, you, I found another one of your books while you were talking. Um, how about the journey? Is that about your spiritual journey from Roman Catholicism to uh, Druidry? Well, it's kind of yes and no. Um, I suppose if it if that journey in my own life hadn't happened, that book would wouldn't exist. So, I in my sort of explorations, I've looked at lots of different things. Like I mentioned, the Buddhism earlier. I, I went to India and I was very interested in Hindu culture and, uh, you know, uh, all the sort of um, the Greek and Roman paganism and uh, also um, Islam, Sufism, Sufism rather, sorry, and um, also Zoroastrianism. 
I found that really interesting too. Yeah, and it's an interesting the, thing. And the roots of that, I suppose, goes back to Mesopotamia and sort of, you know, Egypt. And um, I also read quite a lot of um, uh, interesting stuff from um, all across the world, including North America, you know, Native American stories and things that uh, various, uh, you know, uh, Native American leaders had said over time, and also even Aboriginal uh, stuff too. So um, I noticed over time that a lot of the themes you get across the world are are often very similar. Of course, it, it, you know, the dogma of particular religions can, can be quite different, but, you know, the core messages are about what is important in life. Um and I'd be very much someone that believes in gnosis, you know, from which, you know, Gnosticism is sort of like this, I suppose, a very individual journey of discovering uh, what what spirituality really means, what, what the divine is. And I suppose finding that in your own self and from that understanding the world, the universe, uh, more deeply, so that's really where that came from, and um, I, I know I, I had a bit of a weird experience at the time. I don't know if you'd really describe it as channeling, but I just got these sort of, uh, thoughts coming into my head, like like a letter going into a letterbox, and I just write down what what just came in my head. I, you know, if I had a bit of paper. I just got it down, and um, I also would find myself coming across quotations sort of uh, randomly, and just think, "Oh, that really fits with what I wrote down the other day." So over time, I, you know, I, I ended up with loads of scraps of paper, maybe a, a bit torn off a cereal box, or you know, even some that's, you know, a cigarette box that I found. I just ripped it open and wrote down on it because I didn't have any paper. Um, and then I started bringing a, a little notebook round because this kept happening. You know, I was writing stuff down and then I made a note of these quotes I kept seeing. Um, and they just seemed to coalesce sort of somehow. And um, so it ended up becoming becoming that book. Wow. that That is profound. Can you share some of the insights that are universal to humanity? Well, um, well, I suppose the, one of them would be um, trying to treat people in a in a way that you'd hope to be treated yourself. I think that's pretty much a universal concept, um, not just in. Um, in Christianity, obviously, that's a very big theme, but um, I think um, empathy is an important part of human existence and why we've actually succeeded as a species. I've heard it said that, you know, we've got where we are because of cooperation more than because of uh, competition. Of course, a bit of competition is very healthy, but, um, you know, you sustain a civilization on cooperation more than anything. I mean, if you, 
if you treat people well and you cooperate with each other, it, you know, that that's a good recipe for a successful and happy life. And uh, pretty much all the religion I've looked at, that seems to be a, a core message within them. Thank you. And uh, you have another uh, spiritual book uh, listed, and then uh, um, let me get to that here. Um, Carry folk tales. That, that sounds self-explanatory. Is there a rich folk tradition in uh, Kerry? And if so, can you share a folk tale or two? Yeah, yeah, it is actually a very, um, a very inspirational place. Um, that's where I actually live in uh, County Kerry. Uh, for people that don't know um, where it is, if you look on a map of Ireland, it's in the southwest corner. And um, you see like these little fingers sticking out into the ocean, into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and uh, I live on one of those peninsulas. And the mm-hmm. end of that is like the furthest west point you can get before you hit, uh, hit America. So it really is the very far edge of Europe. And um, it's been, um, uh, they think there's been people living here for um, maybe like possibly 9,000 years ago. And um, it's got a very rich history. You'll find there's an awful lot of uh, Neolithic monuments here. Uh, There's, you know, you've got a very rich history right going up to, of the present day, you know. Um, so it was quite easy to put this together, really. I mean, I did this with a friend of mine called, called Gary Brannigan, and um, we, you know, we wrote it together. But um, um, you're kind of spoiled for choice because there's so many stories. There's a very strong tradition of storytelling, and uh, uh, you know, the the old Irish culture is still quite alive here in Kerry, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, do you want me to read a story out? I find I can find a fairly short one, if you like. If you'd like, yes, I'd be honored. Yeah, okay, just give me a second. Sure. Uh, yeah. There's, um, yeah, there's quite a, quite a selection some of them are going back to uh really ancient times and some of them are really quite modern like one of the stories is about um charlie chaplin and you know uh, he's obviously very famous in uh, uh, in america but he uh, when he moved back to europe he he came to to waterfield so that's one of the later stories but some of them are going back into the you know, ancient, ancient times, uh, within the pre-Christian era as well. So, what I'm thinking of is one of those in particular, one of the old, old ones, which I'm looking for right now, if I can find it. <laughs> so, just give me a moment. Sure. Okay. Now, 
Yeah, I yeah, you see actually this one of this book it doesn't actually have a index as such. So I just uh, it has different sections but um we we can we can uh, what up. I'm going to do is I found one here which would be interesting. Okay. So sure. I think I think this will do the job. This is uh actually this story comes from the Dingle Peninsula and it's called the Kaliak of Adon. Adon is like a sort of a, a sort of a like a palace uh, is one version of what that means. It's sort of like a, you know, your your home place, really. And the Kaliak is this old crone uh, or hag, and sort of often associated with with sort of witchcraft and also very much with winter. And now uh, this is quite a short one, but here we go. Okay. The figure of the Kaliak looms rather menacingly throughout Irish history, portrayed as an ancient goddess of the land, a wise woman healer, the veiled one, or as a wizened old hag. She is perhaps most famous in Ireland as Ancaliac Bera, the hag of the Bera Peninsula, but she is also referenced in many places around Ireland such as the megalithic sacred sites of La Croix, which was once known as Sleeve and in County Mead. It has its own legend about how the Kaliak leapt from hill to hill and dropped the stones there from her apron. In later times, she's often portrayed as a dark and frightening figure who brings the winter with her, disappearing again with the warmth of spring. She features in many Irish legends, such as the pursuit of Dermot and Grania, in which Fiona engages the magical help of the hag to bring about Dermot's demise. Although she's also killed in the process of doing that. She also features in stories of Mad Sweeney and Nile of the Nine Hostages, as well as many other lesser-known tales. Now, the hag of Barrow is also associated with Cork which is the Dingo Peninsula, where it's said that she was born. Her birthplace is given as Anchuck Moor, which is the great house, supposedly the most westerly house in the whole of Ireland. And at the end of the Dingo Peninsula uh, is where she is said to have lived. She's also given as the ancestor of the clan Corcogrina, to which the whole peninsula is named. And this little story which is from Don Quinn in the west of Dingle, is about her. The Kaliak lived on the top of a mountain where the wind blew constantly and it was very hard to approach. And nobody did. And there on top of the mountain, she kept a great treasure. One day in the village, at the bottom of the mountain by the sea, the Kaliak rescued a live lobster from a lobster pot left at the front of a house, and she took it away with her. When she got back to her hovel up on the mountain, she stowed the lobster in her treasure box under the bed. Another day, when the Kaliak was out, a brave young man, or maybe reckless, you might say, climbed up the mountainside, leaning into the ferocious wind, fully intending on stealing the Kaliak's treasure. And eventually, as he made it to the top, he entered the tiny little rickety house 
and looked all around and finally under the bed he found an old box. There was very little in the house but he thought, well this must be where the treasure has to be because he'd heard the tales of it like everybody else but unlike those who were terrified he was foolish enough to come and find it now there was a hole in the side of the box just big enough to fit a fist through so he reached down under the bed and put his hand inside the hole and felt around looking to feel for the treasure the lobster inside quickly clamped onto it and wouldn't let go. No matter how hard he struggled and pulled, trying to get his hand out, he couldn't get it out. So the poor man continued lying there on the floor with his hand stuck inside the treasure box all day long until gradually he saw the sun beginning to set and the room was gradually darkening. And at this stage, the Kaliak returned. When the old woman saw the man lying there, this poor young man trapped on the floor, she said, oh, well done, lobster. <laughs> and with that, she took up a hatchet from the chopping firewood, and in one stroke, she chopped off the terrified man's head. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there, it's a bit macabre, but it's, it's, it's kind of funny and scary at the same time. Yeah, well, maybe not so funny for the young guy. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I grew up with Greek folk tales, and they're they're often uh, have bloody ends or twist endings, and uh, uh, they too have their uh, hags and their uh, elves and uh, all sorts of uh, exotic mm. uh, creatures. Thank you. That was wonderful. Yeah, actually, you saying that reminded me um, uh, in the the Odyssey. Uh, Ulysses, he he goes to this island, and I think it's Circe, is it? How do you say her name? The the sorceress. It's actually, it's actually Kiki, and, but most people pronounce it Circe. Okay. Anyway, I remember she he had a magical flower, didn't he, that protected her him from her yeah. her enchantment. And uh, that story really fascinated me, you know. Yes, a fascinating story, and it's very ancient. Uh, even though the management of heaven and hell uh, or the underworld changed, uh, um, you know, with the, the coming of Christianity, all the lands in between on heaven and below the earth stayed the same. So uh, when I was growing up uh, in uh, Greece, uh, in the villages, they were still telling these same stories that were very ancient about these same beings that you learn about in, in Greek mythology, not the main pantheon, uh, but all the centaurs and the naiads and the dryads and the oceanids and, you know, all of these uh, uh, creatures that appear in the midst is kind of like background. Uh, those are still very much alive and well in Europe, or at least they were uh, in the days of my youth. Yeah, well, that's that's quite similar to the situation in Ireland in many ways, where you have an overlay of Christianity uh, but a lot of, like you say, the belief in these more minor beings, if you like, beneath the level of, you know, God and Jesus, they they remained. You know, you've got the fairies yeah. and various kind of creatures and spirits in the land. Um, and a lot of the practices that have gone on forever just got slightly Christianized because um, 
in many cases, they, you know, um, uh, they couldn't get rid of it. You've got some right. medieval accounts of, of bishops complaining about all these pagan practices and trying to get rid of them, and they just persisted. So uh, the easiest thing to do was just to kind of appropriate them and put a you know Christian gloss on top of it. Very, very true. You had mentioned in a, a communication that we exchanged that uh, uh, Robert Graves, his Greek myths and uh, the white goddess um, had a lot to do with uh, um, modern uh, Druidry. And I read those books as a youth, and they, they're what led me to study the Celtic, you know, both Arthurian and uh, the Druidic uh, when I was younger. Uh, Robert Graves' book and is pointing out the similarities between Ogmios and uh, Hercules. And so that was it. <laughs> that took me on a journey that lasted for very many years uh, in uh, Hesperia, as the ancients called it, the, the Western lands. Mm. Yeah, well, that is quite interesting. Um, I mean, really, he, wa- he wasn't a, an expert in Celtic culture. Um, his father was. Uh, was an acknowledged expert in that area, as you probably know he was his speciality was the classical world, especially mm-hmm. uh, Greece but um you know he 's been criticized an awful lot for that book um in fact, his own father criticized him quite a lot over it because it was kind of a bit fanciful and inaccurate in, yes. in some respects, you know especially his writings uh with regard to um to Ohm, but that was mistaken. His tree calendar it has no real basis in um, uh, in history. He actually mistakenly thought that there were um, thirteen continents, which uh, he you know where he gets his thirteen um, trees for the calendar from the Celtic tree calendar. So it's kind of a modern invention. I mean, it's quite a nice invention, but yeah. it doesn't have any precedent in history because there's actually 15 consonants, not um, not 13. Um, there was a he used a pretty ancient Irish book, Ogigia, I think it's called, um, which I have myself. Which you know, he got that mistake from from that book. And because uh, he obviously wasn't really familiar with Ohm himself that much. So, you know, that mistake got carried forward. And a lot of people, you know, um, have carried on with um, his mistake, which he got from somebody else. So um, that's quite interesting. I mean, it works in itself as a kind of calendar if you want to, but... You know, people thinking that it actually would have been used by the ancient Druids is is totally false. And uh, you know, his his use of the the Song of Amargin as well. You know, some people would be a bit doubtful about that, but um, you've got to give him a certain amount of poetic license, I think. Yeah, you know, he's not a poet, and uh, uh, also, again, even though a lot of what he said was inaccurate. Um, the same could be said about Manly Palmer Hall when he's dealing with uh, Greco-Roman uh, topics. 
generally, like broadly, he's correct. But if you look at the details, there's, there's tons of errors in there. But still, Manly Palmer Hall, Robert Graves, they, they serve as a portal, as a gateway, and they'll get you started on your journey. And then you'll learn the, the facts uh, from elsewhere. And also the facts uh, change. I followed uh, generations of scholars uh, looking at the Greek myths and what was true uh, even a decade ago is no longer held true now. So uh, scholarship goes in and out of faction mm. as well. Mm. You're totally right. I agree. And, um, you know, you certainly with Druidism, you've got sort of different camps. You've got the sort of reconstructionists who can be really po-faced and really insistent that has to be just like this. And then, you know, there's the sort of later, the romantic Druidism, if you like, that sort of stemmed from the 1700s onwards, which isn't so much based in real history. And, um, you know, the two seem quite like, po you know, poles apart. And then I suppose you've a lot of people who are sort of in the middle where, you know, they'd regard it as a more of an evolving tradition based on the past. So it kind of leaves room for a bit of both. I mean, I'm very, very much for accuracy. But as you point out, things change, you know. Um, one thing in the most recent book I've mentioned about Gumbaki uh if I said that right, you know, the, the place in Turkey that they mm -hmm. discovered... And I mean, that has just blown apart the whole archaeological world and uh, forced people to reassess uh, what, you know, quite firmly held beliefs. So as you point out, uh, the archaeology, the history is is constantly evolving as people discover new things that sometimes um, shatter you know, the, the previous sort of... Um, standard, uh, you know, the gold standard or, or what is accepted truth is then uh, completely redefined by a new discovery. Yes. Um, we're, we're getting to the last 10 minutes of our interview. The time passed quickly. I have so many more questions to ask you, but since we started uh, guided tour your books, we'll, we'll end there today and I'll have you on another uh, time in the near future. Now, I love, I love the title of your book, how to save the planet. <laughs> so would you care to tell us a little bit about that book? Well, you know, I've read a lot of books. I've been into environmentalism for a long time, but I have noticed a lot of them are kind of very preachy. And practicality is something I've mentioned and you mentioned. You know, I think, well, at the end of the day, you know, a, um, a thousand tons of theory is all very good. But then, what, you know, you know, uh, an ounce of practicality is maybe worth as much. So I thought, right, how can I condense all this massive load of of waffle down into something that's short and practical so if I write I've got 10 chapters a thousand words per chapter and I said if I can't actually get the message across about what you could actually do that's going to make a difference in a thousand words then well then I'm not much good so so that was my challenge to myself so I, I managed to do that so there's a, a, a short introduction uh, and then each chapter is a basically a thousand words uh, to sort of, uh, you know, not have this 500-page book on, you know, environmentalism. So uh, it tells you everything 
you could you know i think that's really important in the smallest amount of words i could manage you know well that that's one i'm definitely going to order from amazon and read uh, because I'm I'm looking for environmental things to do, and I do whatever I, I possibly can. I've been involved in our local nature center. I got elected into a local political office so I can uh, <laughs> give voice to those things. I've given airtime and platforms uh, to people on uh, the show. Uh, but uh, that sounds like a good way to approach uh, the whole uh, field. Um, how can someone enter your world uh, with all its various uh, dimensions? Well, um, I suppose really, you know, um, just like everybody else, I just saw something that caught my eye that was interesting. And I thought, well, I'll just go and look into this. And, you know, you just um, you just keep going with things, really. You know, I, I think it's I've always sort of, um, been curious about about lots of different things. And, you know, if um I try to find out about things. I suppose one of the, the, the great things now is that the internet solved a lot of problems. I mean, um, you know, I was talking about that book I, I spotted back in, I think it was 1996. I mean, in, in Europe, the internet was kind of non-existent at that point, pretty much. It was, well, it was in its infancy, you know, uh, it was far from the, you know, the point where, you know, every business has, has, um, as a, a, a web page, and you know, right. ordinary people, nobody had uh, personal internet pages. Facebook was—I don't know if it was even going back then. So, you know, you had to go and buy a real book in a shop, or go to a library to find out about stuff. So, I mean, I did a lot of exploring things by by doing that. But now, I mean, you—you know—it's so much easier. You could. There's absolutely anything you want to know about. You can find a video or articles or, you know, order a book online. It's 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 just opened up the whole world to exploration now of any topic that, that you want to know about. So I, I think it's amazing. It's the most amazing resource uh, ever. It's in, um, you know, I've, I just wish it had come a bit earlier. <laughs> And I agree with you 100%. Is your website the best portal into all your creative uh, works? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, if you if people are interested in what I've uh, what I've been doing over the last years, and then yeah, that would be the place to go. My own website, which is uh, my name, LukeEastwood.com. I have a link to your website. I have a link to your uh, one of your Facebook accounts. Uh, I have a link to all of your books, the ones that we covered. Uh, are there any other books that we didn't cover? Um, there's a couple more. There's a bit of poetry. Um, there's well, the new book, the next book isn't out yet. That'll be in September. The one about Halloween. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's. Um, yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much all of them. Uh, and there's a couple of anthologies that I've um, contributed to, but uh, yeah, I think that's um, yeah, they're all on the all on the the website anyway. So um, there, you'll find uh, links to them all there. And what is the title of the Halloween book coming out in September? 
It's called uh, Samhain, uh, the roots of Halloween. Uh, okay. Samhain is the Irish word for November, but it's also the name of the, you know, the Halloween festival in in, in the Irish language. Uh, it's it, you wouldn't. It's not spelt how you'd imagine you'd say it. It's S A M H A I N, but the phonetics of Irish are completely different from those of English. So um, you could, you say the way you say it is sound. In Greek, it's the same thing. Like Zeus is actually pronounced Zeps, like Z E F S, and uh, um, Ulysses or Odysseus is would be Seth. Aries is uh, Aris. Um, is thirsty in English. Uh, so, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. People pronounce things <laughs> their own way. And uh, um, if you're uh, someone who's familiar with the language, you wonder how they got that. Yeah. Well, uh, that's very much a very common problem with English speakers uh, and that um, they tend to sort of uh, put their own... Uh, version on things you know uh, you even you know i noticed that a lot with european names you know uh they get changed when they put into english yes which i've never understood why that happens you know it seems a bit uh a bit arrogant even i think you know that, that's the conversation for another show i'm definitely going to have you back on you touched on gnosticism uh, a few times, and I'm developing a show on Gnosticism, so you're, you're on that guest list, definitely. Luke, thank you. I enjoyed conversing with you uh, very much. Uh, I wish you a lot of success with all of your projects, and uh, I'm looking forward to sharing your book on gardening and reading your book on saving the planet. Thank you very much indeed. I've really enjoyed myself. It was great chat. And thanks to everybody who joined us. Uh, whether you listen to us speaking live or whether you'll be joining us later on demand. Until next time, this is us wishing you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. And uh, let me see if I can find one of our closers because uh, we're on CERN today, not on a regular uh, channel. Um, I'll just play the intro for Voice of Olympus, our next show. Take care. Thank you very much, Luke. Enter the realm of living myth. Voice of Olympus, hosted by Hercules Invictus and Athena Victory, celebrates the mythic impulses of ancient Greece and Rome, and they invite you to celebrate with them. Welcome to Voice of Olympus.